All right, let's get in the Word. Open to the book of Acts. New Testament book of Acts. This morning we're starting a year-long study um, through this book. We'll essentially take a chapter every week, but it's 28 chapters, so it's going to take us essentially all school year to get through it. This is one of the most pivotal books, in my estimation, important books. I, I hate ranking books in the New Testament. You can almost say this about any of them, but it is true of this one. Most pivotal, most important books in the New Testament. because Its, it's intent is not to necessarily teach the deep doctrinal riches of the Christian faith in the same way that like Ephesians or Romans does. But it is a, historic, a very important historical narrative of, that records as what actually did happen in the history of the Christian church for the 30 or so years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So if you're not very familiar with Acts, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a history. It's a history account of what happened in the early church. And it covers about a 30-year period from the days just after the, the resurrection. It's going to open 40 days after the resurrection. And it's going to end in chapter 28 with the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome waiting to appeal to, to Caesar himself. That's about, about 30 to 35 years after the beginning of the book. And, and it third, uh, like he's, there's enough room in it for three missionary journeys. It's a, it's a, so it covers about 30 years or so, and it's, it's amazing. This book is an amazing book. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. I, I'm always a fan of like, especially these books like these, to read them as I say autobiographically, meaning put, imagine it was happening to you. Put yourself in the story. What if, what if you were there either witnessing this or it was happening to you? And if you do that, if you take the time to put yourself in that situation, this book will take your breath away. It will. But I hope um, knowing that we're going to cover about a, a chapter a week will give you a, a, it'll let you know wh where we're going and you can read it ahead of time. Maybe even read the chapter for the coming week several times before you come here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that if you do, you'll get way more out of it than if you're reading it for the first time when we gather on Sunday morning. And if you read chapter one before we came, hopefully you'll see what I'm talking about. I want to say a little bit, just a little bit about the background of this book before we dive into it, because knowing a little bit of the background will help you understand what you're reading when you do read it. And do the, so do the hard work in your Bible study to, to, to get background information about what you're reading. The book of Acts is actually volume two of a two-volume work uh, written by Luke. Okay? So volume one is Luke's gospel. And volume two is the book of Acts. And you can see how we gather this from how each of those two books opens up. So here's how the Gospel of Luke begins. Inasmuch as many, Luke writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. That's how Luke opens his gospel. Luke was a physician, a doctor in that day. How do we know he was a... And he was presumably converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. 
How do we know he's a doctor? Paul tells us. Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And we presume that he came to faith in, in, in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul precisely because he was a companion of Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And we don't have any record of Luke prior to that. Uh, and and when, you, when, you, when we read Acts, you're going to find a number of times where whoever's writing Acts was apparently there with Paul because they, they, they'll often use we, we did this or we did that. Chapter 16, chapters 20 and 21, chapters 27 and 28 have a lot of we passages. So whoever wrote Acts was there and a part of it. But how do we know it was Luke that that was, that was part of that we? We obviously wrote Luke's gospel, but how do we know he wrote Acts? Well, look, look how Acts begins. Uh, he says in the opening words of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit the, to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive uh, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Acts is addressed to the same guy that the Gospel of Luke is addressed to, specifically Theophilus. And, and in this book, Acts opens up specifically references a first book, a first book before this one that dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which fits the bill of Luke's gospel. And it implies that Acts, the second volume, is going to be all about all that Jesus continued to do and to teach. All right? But it's in this first chapter, if you read it, you know that Jesus physically leaves the scene. I mean, if Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. How does that happen if he physically leaves the scene in the first chapter? Well, it's in the next chapter that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And so however Jesus is continuing his work in Acts, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit and his people. Because, uh, well, and, and, and on that note, it's in that sense that for the first time, you've got all this Bible right here. And it's, and it's, it's not until you get to here that for the first time, in a very real sense, you, you, you're, fine, you're reading about people who are, in, who are in, not every respect, but in a lot of respects, are in the same situation of life that we are still today. Right? Um, because they were now living in the physical absence of the Lord Jesus. So are we. They were now uh, living with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So are we. And the fellowship and the encouragement of the church around them. So are we carrying out the same mission that we are given in the Great Commission and waiting on His return. That's where we are. And so, this 2,000-year-old book is closer to us than you might initially suspect. When we come to this first chapter, we'll read it in just a second, there are three basic scenes in this first chapter. The first is, as the, in the opening words, especially verses 4 and 5, you have Jesus telling them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, who will come ten days later, in chapter 2. Then it moves to the second scene, beginning in verse 6, where you have the ascension of Jesus, Jesus ascending back into heaven in the middle of the chapter. And then the third, the latter half of the chapter, beginning in verse 12, is them replacing Judas with Matthias among the twelve, after Judas had betrayed Christ and afterward committed suicide. I think there, there's three basic scenes. I think there's a lot more going on here than, than uh, just... This, this, these. In a lot of ways, this book is set, this chapter, chapter one, is setting the scene for the rest of the book. 
It introduces themes that you're going to see again and again through the rest of the book. But more importantly, it's, this chapter is about preparing these disciples, preparing these believers for what's coming. Because without question, in a lot of ways, we, we, are, we are living this, in the same situation that they were living in Acts. But in some ways, we're not. Because Acts is, very much, is without question, a period of huge transitions. And in that way, some of what they experienced doesn't always mirror exactly our situation. And everything that, that happens in Acts is meant to describe what did happen, but it's not necessarily meant to prescribe the way it should always be. Not in every respect. It was a period of transition. And the Lord Jesus was about to ascend back into heaven before he sent the Holy Spirit. And persecution for their faith was about to get real. And that's why I say that what we're going to find here in chapter 1 is not just neat and tidy literary devices introducing themes. It's going to come up later in the book, although it does that. But he's about to prepare his people for what's coming. That being said, let's read the chapter. All right? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up and had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of is to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. Can I just remind you right there, if you've never thought about it before, uh, Jesus had among his disciples, that we just read their names, men from across the entire political spectrum. Don't let politics get in the way. You had Matthew who was a tax collector who was in bed with the Romans, and you had Simon the Zealot who could not stand the Romans and wanted to revolt against them. Jesus called both of them. Just go ahead. Let's go. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, with this, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among those among us and was allotted his share in, the, in this ministry. Now this man bought a, bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in, in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Lovely. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is 
field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69. And Psalm uh, 109, let another take his office. So the, one of the men who uh, have accompanied us, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness uh, to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, this is your, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And it is our authority, it is, it is all the things that, that I just said, it's sufficient for us, necessary to us, or without it we don't know you, don't know your ways. It's inerrant, it won't lead us astray. So give us eyes to see the truth that's here, give us hearts, minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it and love it, wills to carry it out. Give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly, and give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, even though there's only three basic scenes in this chapter, there's a ton here. I think what's going on in this chapter, as Jesus is physically leaving the scene, he is loading them down with assurance after assurance after assurance and peace upon peace. I mean, he's just backing a dump truck up and, and unloading it on them. He had already told his disciples back in John 14, 27, just 41 days earlier, 41 days before this, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And he didn't say, don't be troubled, don't be afraid, see y'all. He, he said, don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled about, uh, over what you're about to go through. We come to Acts chapter 1, and I think here is how he does it. Here is how he's going to equip them to do exactly what he told them. Don't be afraid. I don't think in Acts 1 we find six assurances, six of them, that he's giving them so that in the coming days when they will be persecuted for their faith and some of them will die, they would neither be troubled nor afraid, but have the peace of Christ himself, just as he went to his own cross. So first, in verses 4 and 5, I think he gives them the assurance of his presence. That even though he was leaving in one sense, he was staying in another. Then, secondly, in those same verses, verses 4 and 5, he also gives them the assurance of his promises. Assuring them that they could trust his word. Beginning in verse 5, but made explicit in the first part of verse 8, he gives them the assurance of his power through the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be a constant theme all the way through the book. Fourth, in the second half of verse 8, we have the assurance of his purpose. This is one of the most well-known. Verse 8 is one of the most well-known verses in Acts, but it, and it's essentially a, a table of contents to the book. But being sure of his purpose for them would give them great boldness in the world. Fifth, verses 9 through 11 the assurance of his position, Christ's position. We don't think enough about the ascension of Christ. We think a lot about his death and resurrection, not enough about his ascension, but it's a big fat deal. 
and it encourages us in more ways than one. And finally, the second half of the chapter, verses 12 to 26, replacing uh, Judas with Matthias, we see the assurance of his people. Because reconstituting the 12 is important, but this 12 was also 12 among 120 believers at the, at the time that would grow exponentially in the coming days. Be a huge channel of, of the peace of Christ to, to each one of them individually. It sounds like a lot, right? And it is. Uh, and that's intentional. Because they're, and it's not just intentional in me, I think it's intentional in Acts. Their lives are about to get really hard. Really hard. And, I, and so I think he is giving them all the assurances that he could possibly give them that they're going to need in the journey. All right? So let's dive in quickly and think about the first assurance he gives, which is the assurance of his presence. Look again at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And there are two things in those two verses that I just want to draw your attention to. First, the phrase, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, and secondly, the Holy Spirit, which you heard about from me. Those are the two phrases. What does Jesus mean here when he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now? What does he mean? Well, he means a lot of things. We don't have time to go on a full-on doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit, but I do want to say a couple of things about what he means about that by here, right here. Baptism in water, okay, because he, 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 he talks about John's baptism. Baptism in water always symbolized cleansing, water washing away things, hence the reference to John the Baptist, like I said. And his, John's baptism of repentance was baptizing, that baptizing them in water upon their repentance symbolized the cleansing and the forgiveness that God gives to those who repent of their sins. Being baptized, though, with the... That's water baptism. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit is actually the reality that the water baptism pictures. Does that make sense? Baptism in water is just a picture of something else. Of what? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because water... Water baptism can't do anything to our hearts, but the Holy Spirit can. But the, very, the second thing is the very word baptism in, in Greek means to immerse, to put fully down into something. In fact, they use it in daily talk even when washing their hands. The way they, they didn't have like running water, but they would have a bowl of water and they would plunge their hands into the bowl to wash their hands. They would use the word baptizo to talk about that. And, they, 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 and, and so to be baptized, that, we, we haven't translated that word. We've just transliterated it. But if you translated it, it would t you would say, in a, in a few days you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Think about that. You will, you will be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. You will be enveloped with the Holy Spirit. Which you heard from me. So keep that in mind when you think about that other phrase, which you heard from me. Not many days from now, you're going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Enveloped, overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. When did, he, when did they hear about that from Jesus? Well, Jesus said a lot about the Holy Spirit, but never more than in John 14 through 16. 
John chapter 14 through 16. On the night that he was betrayed by Judas and arrested, Jesus said more about the Holy Spirit there than anywhere else. And, and think, for a few, think about a few things that he said in those chapters, in John 14 specifically. Jesus knows that he's about to die the next day. And so he's about to prepare the disciples in that chapter for his physical absence. And among other things, he says in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So he's going to send, even if I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to be with you. And look what he says, interestingly, in the very next verse. After he says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I think that has a double meaning. First, I think it has to do with the resurrection. When you see me die on the cross, don't think it's over. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'll come to you. And he did. He's with them right here in Acts. But second, I think, is the ascension that we're also going to read here. When you see me leave physically into the clouds, don't think I'm not still with you. The Holy Spirit is my presence continuing with you. That's why Jesus even said in John 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. You really believe that? Let that marinate. It is to your advantage if I go away, Jesus said. It's actually better for you if I am not physically here. I think if any of us walked on campus right now and wanted to bear witness to Christ, if we had the option to have physical Jesus with us, or the Holy Spirit with us? Nine times out of ten, we say, give me physical Jesus. Wouldn't you want to walk on campus with Jesus himself? Yeah, if you're going to bear witness to him. Jesus said it's actually better if you just go with the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. Well, when Acts 1-5 says that the Spirit that, that, that Jesus, I, that I told you about, when he comes, you'll be baptized in him, immersed in the presence of Christ through the Spirit, overwhelmed with his ongoing presence. And that's a good thing to know when hardship comes. Christ has not left us like orphans. And he's not far away from us, but he's with us through the Spirit. And that's a great assurance. But not only that, but he gives in those same verses the assurance of his promises. Look again at verses 4 and 5 and see this simpler point, but a deeply important point. Assurance. He says specifically, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, oh, excuse me, of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Wait for the promise of the Father. First of all, it's passages like this, by the way, let me read the whole thing. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, ordered them. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's passages like these where the doctrine of the Trinity is inescapable. There's only one God, and yet you have the Son assuring the coming of the Spirit, who is the promise of the Father. But second, for our purposes here, the Spirit was coming, as promised. As promised. And they again would remember repeated promises in John 14 to 16 that the Spirit would come. And here they only have to wait 10 more days and it would happen on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
But Jesus here, in just in those few little words, wait for the promise of the Father. In those few words, he is giving them assurance that they can trust what God has told them in his word. The same is still true. But after telling them that the Spirit would come, just as he promised, that his presence would continue with them through the Spirit, he gives them thirdly the assurance of his power. So in verse 5, he tells them that in a few days they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he tells them at the beginning of verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That word power in, in Greek is dunamis. It's, it's where we get dynamite from, but who cares? It means, it doesn't mean you're going to explode when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It doesn't mean that. It does mean you'll receive power. That word dunamis is often translated ability. All right? Ability. You'll be able to do something. Not like you're going to have physical strength. You'll have ability to do something that you otherwise thought you couldn't do. And that's exactly how the Holy Spirit will manifest himself in their lives. How else do you explain in the span of 50 days? Within the span of 50 days, how do you explain, for example, Peter going from being a man who is afraid of a little girl around a fire as Jesus is being tried. The little girl saying, don't you know him? And he three times, I don't know him, he even cusses at her. Scared of a little girl around a fire. Scared to death. Fifty days later, in Acts chapter 2, he stands up, same guy, stands up in front of thousands and preaches the gospel and not only that, but calls out the Jewish religious leaders while they're standing there. Fifty days apart. How do you explain that? Chapter 2 is going to say he was filled with the Holy Spirit and given ability that he didn't previously have. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he stood and spoke. In chapter 4 of Acts, they're going to pray and they're going to ask the Lord for boldness to keep telling people about Christ, even in the midst of possible death and heavy heavy persecution and it says in acts 4 31 when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and what happened then they continued to speak the word of god with all boldness ability you will receive power and ability that you don't think you have when the holy spirit comes upon you and he will enable you to do what you you believe you are incapable of doing but not just anything you want but toward a specific end he's not going to enable you to do just whatever you want to do he's going to specifically enable you to do what he's calling you to do hence there you saw in that verse it was to speak the word of god with all boldness but that's the fourth assurance he gives is the assurance of his purpose look again at verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's his purpose for empowering them with the Spirit, to be his witnesses. To be witness, witnesses for Christ in the world would be the most difficult thing in the world to do. If you don't, if you don't think bearing witness to Christ in the world is the most difficult thing in the world to do, read Acts. Tell that to Stephen. If you don't think it's so, just try it. Still today. The word translated witnesses here, you'll be more witnesses, is the word where we get martyrs. Martus 
this obedience that he was calling them to in Acts 1-8 could cost them their lives, and it did for some of them. And in a lot of places still in the world today, it most certainly can cost you your life. But even short of that, there are a lot of things. There's a spiritual battle associated with bearing witness to Christ in the world. And that, that spiritual battle manifests itself in a lot of ways. Simple walk on Auburn's campus today, and, the, and the, probably the one, the one thing, the one, or maybe two, maybe they're related. The two things that probably keep most of us from sharing the gospel today is fear of man and love of self. And that's a spiritual issue. It's a hard thing to do. But the Holy Spirit enables us to do it. That's the promise here. And it's emboldening to them and assuring to them to know that I'm not here out here aimlessly. Christ has given me a purpose. And when Jesus gave them that purpose, he combined it with the emboldening power of the Holy Spirit, and they went after it. And the church in the coming pages grows exponentially despite the hardship. And by the way, Acts 1.8, I mentioned it earlier, is kind of like the table of contents for the book. Right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, they would bear witness in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. They would bear witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria in, in chapters 8 through 11. And finally, chapters 12 to 28, they bear witness to the Gentiles to the end of the earth. That's more than merely a table of contents, though. It's, it's the purpose for them to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And it's the same purpose we have in the Great Commission. It was emboldening them to know that they had a purpose that Christ had called them to. But they knew it was worth it also because he gave them another assurance in this chapter, which is the assurance of his position. Look again at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. That's how you know, by the way, that Jesus is still a man. (laughs) He He didn't shed his flesh when he ascended. Because he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. And he went up fleshly, he's coming back fleshly. But they watched Jesus ascend to heaven. And a cloud took him out of their sight. All throughout the Bible, the glory of God is represented by a cloud. When God's glory wanted to overshadow the tabernacle, in what form did it take? A cloud. Same with the temple. When Jesus was transfigured before their eyes in the Gospels and he revealed his glory, there's clouds there. And they were told that he was coming again. It wasn't like Jesus just quietly slipped away from them and then where'd Jesus go? Did anybody see him leave? No. He ascended to the right hand of the Father right in front of their eyes. And he'll make another appearance from that position in Acts chapter 7. As Stephen is being stoned to death, He looks up right before he dies and he sees Jesus, not seated, but standing at the right hand of the Father. Man. Jesus' position there at the Father's right hand would would have given them the assurance to carry on and to persevere in at least a couple of ways. One way, and most obviously, it would have assured them that Jesus is still sovereign. Whatever they would have to endure carrying out the purpose of bearing witness to his name, It would be okay because Jesus Christ is on the throne. And nothing would happen in their lives that was outside His sovereign control. That's assuring. But for another thing, Jesus ascending to heaven 
right before their very eyes, that is assurance to them that 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 is assurance to them of their place in heaven as well. Not just that he's sovereign, but if he goes, if he's going there, I'm going there. Because Jesus did not just die as our substitute. Get this. Jesus himself is our substitute in all ways. He didn't just die as our substitute. He lived as our substitute. Perfect life in our place. He died as our substitute. He descended to the grave as our substitute. He arose from the dead as our substitute. And he ascended as our substitute. All of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you are united to him by faith. Where he goes, you go. So his ascension to heaven is the guarantee of ours. I'm united to him, and that's where he is. That is incredible assurance in the face of danger and death. Paul, who suffered probably the most, would later tell the Philippians, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How did he know that prize was there? Not only because it's promised in Scripture, but Jesus was already there as his guarantee. There's one more assurance he left him, and that's the assurance of his people. We don't have time to read the second half of the chapter again, but just think about what happened. Peter stood up again, and he, he addressed the elephant in the room, Judas. And he said, he basically says this, all right, guys, everybody knows about Judas. I'm just to assure you, Jesus didn't make a mistake by choosing him to be among the 12. Jesus didn't make a mistake. We should have seen it. Jesus saw it ahead of time. We should have seen it. But he basically says, you know, Jesus knew it was foretold in Psalm 69 that Judas would do that very thing. So Scripture foretold it. And then Psalm 109 says we should pick somebody else. So let's do that. That's what he basically says. And they asked the Lord to direct their choice, and and Matthias was chosen, who had been with them from the very beginning, had witnessed Christ's resurrection. So the 12 were complete again. Why 12? Why 12? Like the 12 tribes of Israel who were God's people according to the flesh, making, Jesus is making clear through the choosing of 12 that the people he's building are not those according to the flesh but according to faith. And these 12 were among 120 total believers at the time. And that number by the next chapter would swell to over 3,000. But the focus on all the believers, 120 of them, would be an important focus in this book, how important believers are to each other. Just one example from later in, in Acts, Acts 14. But Jews came, just, just again, this is, this is awesome. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, look for phrases like that, When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, the very place where he was stoned and left for dead. Why did he go back? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul was stoned and left for dead, and he only got up because the disciples gathered about him. 
And he went back to, to encourage them to persevere. So he has assured us of a lot of things, his presence, his promises, his power, his purpose, his position, but it's his people that are the hands and feet of most of those things on a daily basis. Well, this is an amazing book. And that's the first chapter. Um, we, yeah, we've been called to follow hard after Christ just like they were, and we've been given every assurance of it just like they were. Hey, look, because Shane and Shane were here, ain't nobody complaining about that. We ran out of time. So let me just tell you that uh, these are the questions that I was going to ask you. Not surprisingly, what does it teach us about Christ that he gives us such assurances? What does it teach, about our, teach us about ourselves that we need them? What does it lead us to do in response? Just think through those, those questions as you go. What does it teach us about Christ that he gives us all these assurances? What does it teach us about us that we need them? Not one or two, but six of them. What does it lead us to do in response?